Our scripture today is Malachi 3, 7 to 15. The book of Malachi is a conversation between God and God's people. Just before this passage, the people are told, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? The people of God, the people of God are demanding to know where justice is and when it is coming. In our text today, they will find themselves on the receiving end of an uncomfortable answer. Malachi 3, 7 to 15 from the Common English Bible. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have deviated from my laws and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heavenly forces. But you say, how shall we return? Should a person deceive God? Yet you deceive me. But you say, how have we deceived you? With your tenth part gifts and offerings, you are being cursed with a curse, and you, the entire nation, are robbing me. Bring the whole tenth part to the storage houses so there might be food in my house. Please test me in this, says the Lord of heavenly forces. See whether I do not open all the windows of the heavens for you and empty out a blessing until there is enough. I will threaten the one who wants to devour you so that it doesn't spoil the fruit of your fertile land, so that the vine doesn't abort its fruit in your field, says the Lord of heavenly forces. All the nations will consider you fortunate, for you will be a desirable land, says the Lord of heavenly forces. You have spoken harshly about me, says the Lord, but you say, what have we spoken about you? You said, serving God is useless. What do we gain by keeping this obligation or by walking around as mourners before the Lord of heavenly forces? So now we consider the arrogant fortunate. Moreover, those doing evil are built up. They test God and escape. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My latest obsession in my free time has been listening to true crime podcasts. Uh, when I'm driving or walking the dog, you will almost always hear me listening to something like criminal or serial or small town murder. This isn't surprising, I guess. I was a child who grew up watching Forensic Files and Diagnosis Murder and Matlock. I've always been fascinated with trying to solve a crime. And as it turns out, I am not the only one. True crime shows are everywhere that you look. Fake crime shows are also everywhere that you look. In fact, Serial won a Peabody Award, the first ever podcast to win a Peabody Award in their inaugural season on NPR. You see, we all love the theoretical concept of justice. 
that the bad guys get punished and the good guys get rewarded. And just like the Israelites of long ago, we tend to see justice as something that happened to or for an individual person. We think of it as our forebears did, which is perhaps why the book of Malachi resonates even today. Because it is set up like a courtroom scene from any of our favorite TV shows. See, Malachi, the very name of the book, is meant to catch the reader's attention because unlike Amos or Micah or any of the other minor prophets, Malachi isn't actually a name. It's the Hebrew word for messenger, the messenger. This book is literally a message for the people of God from God himself. And the four chapters of the book go back and forth between the people and God, both bringing charges against one another, like lawyers on opposing sides of an argument. They set out accusations and they put forth evidence in an attempt to prove that they are right. The people keep laying out their personal grievances against God and their complaints, and God keeps showing them evidence to the contrary. God keeps pointing out their failure to understand the true nature of justice and their role in it. Justice, God will argue, is not only or simply about individuals getting what's coming to them. It is more importantly about the wholeness and the restoration of the entire community of God. And this is where our language fails us. Because for far too often, when we read the word you in scripture, we read it as an individual, to an individual person. But the Bible, I've been told, is probably best read in a southern vernacular. Because when we see you, what we should really hear, and I was corrected about this this morning by a Texan, is all y'all. It's a plural. The promises of God are rarely directed at an individual, especially in the Hebrew Bible. They are almost always for the community, for the people, for the common good. Author and speaker Andy Crouch, who has been writing about this for a long time, wrote this in an article. Seeking the common good in its deepest sense means continually insisting that people are of infinite worth, worth more than any system, any institution, or any cause. Societies are graded on a curve, he writes, where the fate of the most vulnerable is given the most weight because the fate of the vulnerable tells us whether a society truly values people as an end or simply an ends to a mean. This is the heart of justice that God is relaying in the book of Malachi. Not justice as simply punishment for wrongdoing, but justice as care for those in the community who cannot care for themselves. Justice as a community-wide act of sacrifice and trust that places the group before the individual. And the people of God in our text have forgotten this key fact. They are laying out their accusation on God's doorstep And they are more concerned with their own well-being over the plight of the weak and the vulnerable. Their vision of justice is too narrow. 
They cannot see past their own needs of retribution to see how they themselves are participating in the injustice that abounds. In the closing line of chapter 2 of the book, we hear a charge from God laid on the people. We heard it in our introduction today. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And yet you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice, they ask. The messenger has an answer for them. In the beginning of chapter 3, he says, Look, I am sending a messenger who will clear the path before me. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. But who can endure his day of coming? Who can withstand his appearance? Because he is like a refiner's fire or a cleaner's soap. I will draw near to you in judgment, and I will be quick to testify against the sorcerers and the adulterers and those swearing falsely against those who cheat the day laborers out of their wages and oppress the widow and the orphan against those who brush aside the foreigner and do not revere me. For I am the Lord and I do not change and you children of Jacob have not perished. And it is here that God is laying out his defense to the accusations I am the Lord, and I have not changed. Therefore, if you look around and only see injustice, perhaps you should look at yourselves. After all, where is the justice that has allowed the children of God to not perish? If justice is really about an individual just getting what they deserve, then there is no justice in their continuation. Because this message comes in the post-exilic period of Israel. This is long after the people of God have gone far astray, have rejected the covenant they were blessed with in Sinai, have begun worshiping other idols and chasing after other gods. They have lusted after power and influence in the Persian Empire. These are people who have forgotten the commandments they were told to bind and write on their hearts that were set before them in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. In many ways, these are a people who have stopped living for God, have stopped living for God's community, and instead are living for themselves. But God offers them a new start, a chance at restoration. Where is God's justice, they ask. They can't even see it. They've become the very people that they profess to hate, doing the same things that they're seeking God's justice for, having been done to them. Return to me, he says, and I will return to you. In other words, start holding up your end of the bargain. Start living out your end of the covenant, and there I will be. Where will you find justice? You will find it when you start trusting me and following me once more. In his book, Journey to the Common Good, Walter Brueggemann wrote, There is a great crisis among us, and it is the crisis of the common good. 
the sense of community solidarity that binds all in a common destiny, the have and the have-nots, the rich and the poor, we face a crisis about the common good because there are powerful forces at work among us to resist it, to violate community, solid, community solidarity and to deny a common destiny. But mature people at their best are people who are committed to the common good that reaches beyond private interests, that transcends sectarian commitments, and that offers human solidarity. Like the people of Malachi, just like you and I, are often less mature than we had hoped. And so God finds himself leveling a very serious charge at his people. You are robbing me, he tells them. And like small children who suddenly can't see the lamp that they just broke, we go, what? How are we robbing you? We cannot see our own complicity. How are we robbing you, God? He doesn't pull any punches when he says, it's in your tithes and your offerings. You are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house and put me to the test. See if I do not open the windows of heaven and pour down a blessing. I'm not sure that many of us today see our failing to tithe as robbing God. Just like the Israelites didn't see it that way. And we might claim ignorance or we might even claim that on this side of Jesus perhaps the rules are a little more flexible, a little less important. But for the people that this letter was written to in the moment that it was written, there is no excuse. The Hebrew Bible is very, very clear in Deuteronomy and Leviticus on the requirements of the people of God to tithe, and that is 10%. 10% of all their crops, 10% of all their goods made from their crops, 10% of all their livestock was to go to God and his temple every year. And that's not the last 10%, it's the first. The very first 10% of all was to go to God. And God has some very pertinent reasons for this, and it's not because he likes lambs, and it's not because he needs our grain. It's for three reasons, the first being that when you do this, you are declaring and living into your trust in who God is. If you are going to give the first 10% of all your food or all your livestock to God and to the temple, you are going to be betting and praying and believing pretty hard that the other 90% is going to show up. You are living into a life of trust in God that he will be faithful to his promise. Secondly, it was a way in which the priests were fed and clothed and helped the community to worship. See, when the Levites, when the 12 tribes of Israel were given land, the Levites weren't given any. Because they were to be the priests of God. They were to live in the other communities, in the other tribes, to be at the temple, to be in the holy places, to help the people worship and grow closer to God but it also meant they had no way to earn, no way to make a living, no way to feed themselves. And so when the people bring their 10% to the temple, they are helping their community to worship God. And finally, 
that 10% that sat at the temple wasn't just for the Levites, it was also for the vulnerable in the community. The orphans, the poor, the widows, the landless, those who were foreign in their lands, who had nothing, if they were hungry, they could come and eat their fill. The group mattered more than the individual. And so to fail to give the tithe meant that people were literally stealing from God, stealing his blessings for others to benefit themselves. It indicated a lack of trust in God. It made it more difficult for the priests to be able to bring worship and sacrifice for the whole community. It meant that people were literally stealing from God's provisions for the weak to enrich themselves. They were putting themselves as individuals before the common good of the community. And this was and this is a perversion of God's justice. Because God's economy is not our economy. In God's economy, you will not hear the words, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It doesn't exist. In God's economy, people are not judged for not having enough or not being wealthy enough or for finding themselves in dire straits. See, God's economy is not about enriching yourself at the expense of others just because you can. Where is the God of justice, they ask. Test me, he says. Follow through on your end of the deal, on your end of the covenant, and you will see my justice. And you are blessed beyond measure as a people. When you stop hoarding for yourself and you take the welfare of others before your own, you will be awed at what I will do. And Jesus will remind us of this principle again and again in his own ministry. When he tells the parable of the sheep and the goats, of all the religious people who thought they were doing all the things right and yet God does not know their name. And yet all of those who cared for those in prison and gave clothes to those who were cold and food and water to the hungry and thirsty, they are remembered in the book of life. Or perhaps it's when he tells the parable of the vineyard owner who goes around and starts hiring people throughout the day to help pick the fields. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same wage, and those who were hired earliest in the morning are angry. Why should those who only worked an hour get as much as us? And the owner looks at them and he says, did I not pay you what I promised? And the people say, yes. He says, then don't begrudge me my generosity to others. See, God's justice in scripture is not our justice. And that is what can make it so very hard for us to understand and see. And it can become so tempting to be like these Israelites, to look around the world and see the wicked prospering and throw up our hands and say, serving God is useless. What do we gain by keeping his obligation? So now we consider the arrogant fortunate and those doing evil are built up. They test God and escape. And many have done this have looked at the pain and the suffering in the world and decided that following the commandments of God clearly have no tangible benefits for them in this life 
and they choose another path, a path where one glorifies and worships the arrogant and the evil for their perceived success. And we miss the point. That maybe, just maybe, if we could stop for one moment and stop being so self-focused, if we could push ourselves to see beyond our own hurt and our own pain and our own loss, that we might then be able to have a better understanding. We might then be able to open our eyes and see where God's justice is breaking forth in the world, even when it doesn't feel like it affects us personally. There's an unattributed quote that says this, sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty and suffering and injustice when he could do something about it. But I'm afraid he would ask me the same question. See, this is the question the Israelites are asking in Malachi. And this is the answer they get that they should have been afraid of. That their participation, that our participation in God's justice is vital and it cannot be overlooked or be ignored. Stop being so concerned with yourself, God says. Start being more concerned with returning to me and following my ways, and then maybe my justice will start to make more sense to you. When you care for your community, I will care for you. When you give, I will supply. The time is coming, God says in chapter 4, I promise. I promise that the wicked are going to get what is coming to them. But be careful, he warns us, because those who are declared wicked might just surprise you. And so he goes on in the end of the book to say, so return to me and follow my commands, even when it's hard, even when it requires sacrifice, and I promise you will be vindicated and remembered in the right time. You know, as a culture as a church, we tend to ask all the time where God is in our lives, where God is in our country, where God is in our world. The church as a whole throws up her hands and demands to know why our numbers are dwindling or our influence seems to be waning, why injustice and evil seem to be prevailing. And I realized as I was working on this sermon in a very uncomfortable way that we are asking the same question that the Israelites and Malachi are asking. Where is the God of justice? Where are you? And if we are asking the same question, then perhaps the question God is asking back at us is the same one. How are you robbing me? This was not something I wanted bouncing around in my head. I'll be honest, it disturbed me a lot and I would prefer to ignore it because it made me ask the question, how are we robbing God? What are we holding back? What are we clinging to rather than extending as an offering? What is our most precious resource in our world, in our culture? And while money is important to many of us, I don't think that's it. I think the truth is that the most prized resource in our culture is our time. We are fiercely defensive of our time, forgetting that literally every second we are alive is a gift from God. And so the question that began to grow in my head and make me very, very uncomfortable was what would it look like what would it look like if you and I faithfully tithed our time 
to God? What if we were to give a tenth of our time every week to serving the community and the people of God? This is not easy, and it's not meant to be something for shame. I'm not trying to shame people into feeling like they're not doing enough. It's just a question that I can't shake now. When I started to think and imagine that there are seven days in a week and 24 hours in a day, which means that each week you and I are each given 168 hours to steward. If we were to take the first 10% of our time before everything else gets in the way, before sports, before work, before anything else, that means that 16.8 hours of our week would be dedicated to serving God in the world. 16.8. Now, I get it. We have things going on. You say, Brenna, I have to sleep. Okay, well, then let's take out eight hours of sleep seven days a week. Now we have 112 hours. So that's 11.2 hours a week dedicated to serving the people and the kingdom of God. But Brenna, I have a job. Okay, well, we'll take out another 40 hours. Now we have 72 hours left in our week. So we have 7.2 hours dedicated to serving the community of God and the people of God a week. And yet, we don't. We maybe do an hour or two on Sunday, or maybe one Sunday, like twice a month if we can make it. Maybe we come to a class, maybe we volunteer at a food bank for an hour. It, they're the things we now fit in around everything else that we dedicate our time to. But when we listen to God and we hear God telling us if we return to him, he will return to us. So maybe instead of looking outward and blaming everything on the culture or millennials or kids these days or whatever it is, maybe if instead we first looked at our commitment to God, we might find a different answer. And then you begin to wonder, how might the world change? How might God's justice be found and revealed in the world if every person in the church was dedicating 16.8 hours of their week to somehow serving God, whether it was reading Bible stories to their children or serving on a committee at church or feeding the poor or talking to someone who was lonely? I don't know what it is. But how might the world change? See, God promises to be faithful. If we are willing to put our trust and lives in his, he will be present. The question we have to ask ourselves is if we are willing to make the sacrifice that is required. Amen.